Freedom Pact. Today, we are speaking to one of our heroes. Today's guest is the best-selling author of multiple books that include The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, Mastery, 33 Strategies of War, and his latest book, The Laws of Human Nature. That's right, you guessed it. It is Robert Greene. Robert has regularly featured in rap culture as he is viewed as one of history's most prominent figures into power, seduction and strategy. Robert's name has been mentioned in songs by artists such as Drake, Kanye West, Jay-Z and Rick Ross. Robert has also released a book with 50 Cent which was conveniently named The 50th Law. Robert's books have sold millions and millions of copies. In fact, the content underpins key elements in power and human nature, so much so that his books have been banned by the majority of US prisons. And it's even widely reported that Fidel Castro has read Robert's books. Robert is also fluent in five languages, is a student of Zen Buddhism, and is the mentor to Ryan Holiday. As you can guess, Robert is a major hero of ours, and this is an enormous privilege for us. And it seems so surreal that this is where we're at on our journey. Today in this episode, we will be discussing the laws of human nature, mastering our emotional selves, strategies for influencing others, and a few personal questions into Robert's life. I truly believe that Robert may be one of the smartest people that I have ever spoken to, and we are so excited to share this episode with you guys. Without any further ado, Robert Green, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Well, thank you for having me. My, my pleasure. When we informed our audience that you would be coming onto the show, we yeah. received an overwhelming response to speak with you about one topic, which just was okay. repeated over and over again. Okay. So, Robert, please could you explain this idea, which has really surfaced in in recent times, but we haven't really explored it fully, we don't feel. And that's this concept of a lifetime versus dead time. Uh-huh. Basically, you know, it's it's your relationship to time is is not time is not just this objective thing it's really how you experience it and um when you work for other people and you're sitting there kind of waiting for time to pass by as you play a video game or you know just do some kind of mindless form of entertainment um i call that kind of dead time because in that sp- space, you're merely waiting for it to pass by. You're trying to speed it up or, or at least distract yourself from the passage of time. And you're not really living or experiencing what's going on. 
Um, but the great thing about about uh, time and about what I write about is that you can control this. You can change that dynamic so that um, so that when you work for yourself and everything's on your shoulders and you're responsible for it, for what happens, suddenly everything kind of clicks into place and your eyes light up and your your adrenaline kicks in and your your sensation of time is much different. It slows down. It's much more filled. It it kind of um, it's just more alive, and it's your own time. So, you know, when you were born, um, and as you get up older, everything that you have can basically be taken away from you. You could make millions of dollars. You could buy have yachts and castles and and a beautiful wife, etc. And all of that can leave you. You don't really own that or possess it. The only thing that you really truly possess from the moment of your birth is your time, how long you have to live and what you do with that time. That is yours and yours alone. Nobody can take that from you, um, even if they throw you in prison for whatever reason. And I've read many accounts of prisoners. There's some very incredible stories of people who in their time of prison managed to make it very productive and they read and they earned a law degree and they experienced it as something, you know, kind of life changing. So no matter your circumstances, your time is your own and what you do of it will do with it is your decision. And you can either make it something that other people own, they control when you work for other people, or you can make it something that you possess, and that you create with it and that you do something productive and brilliant with it. And when you do that, I believe that I call that a live time. And you certainly feel more alive. I know with myself, when I'm writing a book, when I'm in the process of writing a book, I feel a lot more alive than when I'm not writing one, when I'm just simply waiting for my next project or something. But I feel like everybody has had that experience more or less. What do you think some of the symptoms that could be experienced if we just live a life full of dead time see it a lot in the world today it's kind of a little bit of what i'm writing about in my next book i mean if you look at the statistics i don't know how what it is in 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 the uk but in the united states rates of suicide have skyrocketed skyrocketed among young people incredible levels of, of depression which can be measured and you can find statistics on it based on the amount of antidepressant drugs people are taking. And you can see it in drugs and, and, and things like that where people are trying to numb themselves and not really experience life but kind of numb their emotions. Addiction is a very key uh, signal of this sort of dead time. And addictions can come in many different forms. It can come in drugs, but it can also come in pornography in video games, in food or whatever, anything to kind of numb you. Because life is actually has an element that's sort of terrifying. You know, you're, you're facing your mortality, your death. You also, life is a struggle. People can be difficult. So reality can be a little bit harsh. And your response often for a lot of people, and I understand it, it's a world in which... You know, there isn't much out there to kind of, there's not much guidance for people. 
and your way to kind of deaden that sensation of of how life is harsh and difficult and that you have to die some at some point is to sort of drug or, or numb yourself in any way possible. And I think the signs of dead time are all around us. Yeah, you mentioned Ryan Holiday, and it's well documented. Obviously, there's a viral video of him of him talking about it. That this advice specifically changed his life, and yeah. it, it got me wondering because we are big fans of Ryan. As an as an apprentice of yours, what did Ryan do right, and what do you think someone who was looking to adopt a similar role could do to make themselves indispensable to you? Well, uh, I mean, Ryan was a very sort of special person. I've had many assistants before, and none of them have ever risen up to his level. Um, so in some ways, it's a little bit unfair because he's a, he's a very distinctive individual. But there are some lessons that, that you can learn. I mean, basically, when you're approaching someone that you want to work with or work for or serve as a mentor, you have to think of their interests, their self-interest. Now, I have a law in the 48 Laws of Power in there about don't rely on gratitude, rely on always appeal to people's self-interest. But this is something that you should think of in terms of all of your interactions. If you're trying to get a favor from someone or get some help, you have to think first of what they need, what they want, what they are missing in their life or in their world. And so Ryan... He, he knew that. First of all, he was very well versed in my books and in, in, in how I write. And you'd be surprised how many people approach me and they don't really know what I do or what I write or they don't understand the spirit of it. So if you're looking for this kind of relationship, do your research. Get, dig deeply into the person that you want to work for. Understand what he or she might be lacking. Are they overwhelmed with work? Are they way too busy? Do they need someone to organize their life? Um, in the case of Ryan, you know, I'm kind of an older, much older person. I'm twice his age. Um, and my great weakness is I'm an absolute moron when it comes to the internet. I'm a digital moron and I, can, and I readily admit it, as a lot of people my age are. And Ryan is like a genius when it comes to these things. So he could provide me something that I definitely lacked. And the first thing that he did for me, which was very exciting, was he took my Wikipedia page and he saw that it was not very good or flattering. And he completely changed it for me. And I would never have been able to do that. And so later I got him connected to American Apparel, Dove Charney, from which he wrote his first book, Trust me, I'm lying. And he did the same thing for Deb Charney. He, he corrected his Wikipedia page. And he was very grateful, so grateful that gave Ryan a, a really good position. So basically, being conscientious, showing that you're responsible, that you're not a flake, from the moment you're, you approach this person who is powerful, who you want to work for, you show that you're diligent, you call them right on time, that you don't overburden them with pestering phone calls, that you know that you're respectful of their time, but that when you are asked to do something, you do what is required and you do as even more so, that you're well organized and that you think of their interests and what they need and what their weaknesses are and how you could provide for it. But the other important thing is to never be intimidated by somebody who's powerful. 
or, who, or who, with whom you might want to serve as an apprentice. You'd be surprised how people, how people in kind of my position are actually hungry for someone to help them. We're hungry to connect to someone younger who has the energy that we may be lacking, who has certain kinds of knowledge that we may not have. It's kind of a, a pseudo sort of parental type relationship, which can be very fulfilling for the older person. So don't feel intimidated, you know, but just do your homework and do your research. And by the time you, you contact them, you're prepared, you know what you're going to say, and you know how you're going to make your appeal to them. One thing which you and I definitely have in common is that we both feel like the keys to success in life is people. We always, as you mentioned there, we always dig deeply on research. So if I were to mention the Los Angeles Lakers, would your eyes light up, Robert? <laughs> yes, they would. Yes, they would. <laughs> and before, prior to the interview, um, yeah. because I heard you uh, say on a different podcast and you were talking about the power of a, of a genuine compliment and not, yeah. not specifically talking about things which the person might always hear you know so it'd be so easy to compliment you on your writing but when when you look into the nuance something which lewis and i both agree is that we we actually really love listening to your voice it's very soothing we we listen to the podcast before we go to sleep <laughs> so that's something we would uh, we would add wow that that is quite a compliment i really appreciate that that's great that's no great. one's ever said that before I was once in London for a series of for a book tour, and I was on radio. I think the BBC, and somebody said that I had a voice for radio. That's the closest I've ever come to this kind of compliment. Well, you guys have great voices. You have great accents. Oh, we, we appreciate that, Robert. <laughs> so, we, we'd like to to just dig a bit deeper on you before we delve into the work. So, when we think about, I mean, your work has travelled far and wide from the lay person that is naive to human nature, power dynamics, seduction, individuals or governments, uh, you know, these organizations, people with tremendous power. So my question to you would be on a personal note, what is the type of person that you love helping the most? Well, that's that's a good question. I think the thing that I, the people I ha like helping the most are those who are kind of underdogs, who have over who are overcoming tremendous odds against them being successful. Um, in other words, I'm not so interested in people who already have millions of dollars in a very successful business. I like helping people who I intuit have a lot of talent and skill and are intelligent and interesting but they've gotten a raw deal or they don't really know how to work with other people. They have skills, they're creative, but they're missing something. They, they lack the ability or they lack social intelligence. So I really like helping people who come at me with a story where it's clear that, that, they're, that they're the underdog, that, they, um, that they're not, they were not born with a silver spoon in their mouth, that um, they're very ambitious, they're goal-oriented, but they don't really know how to put it all together. It's kind of like a Pygmalion thing. It's a little bit grandiose of me, 
in the Pygmalion thing is in the sense that I get to be the one that kind of helps build their world and really help them achieve kind of their dreams. But that's, that's to me the most satisfying. And then I also like working with people who are very kind of open-minded, um, who you'd be surprised. A lot of people come to me for consulting or help and they really don't want to hear what I have to say. They want, they want to hear a reflection of what they already are thinking of their own ideas. They're not really open to criticism. And I like to be kind of harsh with people because my idea is you're surrounded by a lot of people who never tell you the truth. Everyone is saying, oh, your podcasts are the most wonderful. I'm not saying you guys out there. Um, oh, you know, your, your latest record was fantastic. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Very rarely, even from your own parents, do you actually get the truth about yourself, about who you are and about your, your strengths and your weaknesses. And I want to be that mirror that you hold up to yourself that shows you who you really are. And I need to be able to have the latitude to criticize you. Nothing personal, but can you take this? Can you take somebody sort of exposing what they, what they perceive as your possible weaknesses? And can you work on that? And actually, Ryan was really good at that because I discovered early on that I could criticize him. He wasn't perfect. Sometimes he completely misunderstood what I was trying to do. And I made it clear to him that I didn't like you know, his last bit of work. And he never got, took it personally. So I like people who, who are open-minded and who are not so soft that they can't take some criticism because that means a lot. I wrote in The Laws of Human Nature that it's a cr very important to be able to judge people's character. And I give you some barometers for how you judge people's character. And one of the most important barometers is how people take criticism. Because if they take criticism, they take it personally. That means they have a very large ego, a very sensitive ego. And it's going to be extremely hard for you to work with them. And it's going to be extremely hard for them to go very far in life. But the ability to not take things personally, to listen to other people, to hear what they have to say, to take you know degrees of criticism is to me an extremely important trait. And I really appreciate that in people I work with. Let's start off with the negative aspects of human nature in social situations. It's, I'd say, widely believed that prevention is better than the cure in uh, yeah. these situations. So what are some character traits that we should look to avoid in business and relationships? Well, the, mo the primary thing that you want to avoid is the narcissist, is the person who's extremely self-absorbed, whose who's all their attention is basically turned inward. Um, and uh, they can be a real nightmare. But the problem with such people, I mean, there are other types to be aware of, but that's one of them. And the problem with such people is that they can be very charming and seductive and charismatic, which might at first glance seem like a bit of a paradox. Why would somebody who's so self-absorbed, oh, who needs all the attention on them, why would they actually be charming? What could make them charming? Well, the reason, and I explain it in my chapter on narcissism, is that at an early age, they're constantly needing attention from other people. And they know how to get it. They become masters at it. But they also know 
how to appear to be interested in you, how to appear to be interested in your ideas so that they can draw you into their world, into their, to their dynamic, and basically use you as a pawn. So at first glance, you might go, wow, they're really listening to me. They're very interested in me. And you, you mistake that for empathy, but really it's kind of a, a psychopath, psychopathic energy where they're trying to look at you and figure out how they can use you. So there's, there's two things. They're very dramatic. They've learned this from childhood how to get attention by being very dramatic, and that can develop into charisma. And they also know how to ask questions and make it appear that they're interested in you, but only so that they can later use you. Now I use in my I talk in my book about Joseph Stalin, who is one of the you know one of the most evil pe- people in history, responsible for murdering millions, and he was a raging narcissist. But when you met him, he was unbelievably spellbinding. So many people fell under his spell. That I thought, why? What? What could possibly be it? And if you looked at it, he 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 was seemed to be very interested in the other person. He would ask questions. And um, and he also had this certain particular energy, this way of looking at you that was kind of mesmerizing. And you would fall under his spell, and then later you would find that you you know you were completely under his thumb. I, I've heard from people who have met Donald Trump that actually in person he can be actually charming, but he is one of the most raging narcissists in the world. And these people are great at drawing you into their world drawing you into their drama, and they could be a nightmare. It can take years to get out of them. If you get in a relationship with someone like that, they know how to push your buttons. They know how to make you feel guilty as if it's your fault for withdrawing, as if it's your fault for fighting with them when they're not giving you what you want. So that would be the worst kind of person, the kind of person that really isn't authentically interested in you and your world. And I talk in my book about how you can recognize, differentiate the two types, how you can differentiate someone who's truly empathetic, who's truly interested in your ideas and your world, and how to distinguish that from the person who's only doing that so that they can manipulate you later on. So that would be one of the main types. From a business point of view, you want to be wary of people who are overly aggressive. I've had to do this. I've had to... Um, for a lot of my consulting, I've this scenario repeats itself over and over again. A person A turks, takes on a person B to be their business partner because that person seems very, you know, very knowledgeable, has a great resume, has all sorts of great ideas, and slowly but surely they end up taking the company, the business, away from them. It's extremely common, and that's because. This person is is very aggressive, but they know how to disguise their aggression. Aggressive people who want to control you, who want to take something over, they don't come in announcing it. They don't say, you know, I'm going to bully you and ruin your life. They know how to disguise it. They know how to deceive you. I talk in the book about probably the most aggressive person that ever lived, which is John D. Rockefeller, the world's first billionaire, the man who founded Standard Oil. When you first met him, he seemed like a lamb. What an angel. He was all about religion. He quoted the Bible. He spoke softly. He always made it seem like what he was doing was fruit in your best interest. And then before you knew it, he was buying up your company and kind of, um, you know, screwing you in some way. So 
You want to make sure that the person that you're partnering with is not someone who, who's not just simply using you for their own agenda, that they're actually a team player. And in all of these cases, the narcissist, the aggressor, the, the people with bad character who are, have very sensitive, touchy egos, which is another type, you look at their record, you look at their past. People never do anything once they leave a track record. If they um, are volatile and can't get along with people, you won't see that in your job interview or when you're about to have a relationship with them. But if you looked at their past and you look at their past relationships and at their resume, you would see that they couldn't hold a job for more than a few months, that they were fired here and there, or that, that their, their, their career has been very rocky. They'll come up with all kinds of excuses. Oh, people have, you know, I'm the victim here and there. Just look at the record, look at the past, and see patterns in their lives. And nine times out of ten, that pattern, you will see something that will prevent you from hiring them or entering in a relationship. So is that simply a case of that there are just, that there could be just certain traits, which, I mean, I know that you write in the book about things from childhood, early attachment styles, that, that if there's a past history, that maybe it's better just to not take the risk and believe that someone could change, but to believe past behavior. Well, you know, you don't want to be paranoid. You do want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes people do have bad luck. And they do have, they were fired for reasons that they could not control. So I'm not telling you to always start from the negative position. But I want you to pick up signs early on that something might not be right. And that if you can avoid a relationship with someone who we call a toxic type, then believe me, you're saving yourself years of trauma. And it's worth it to occasionally be wrong and err on that side. But, you know, take a classic example. I talk in the book about envy, and that's probably one of the types you really, really want to be aware of and you really, really want to avoid because they could be extremely dangerous. And I talk in the book how envy is an extremely human emotion. I admit to me feeling envy of other people, particularly of other writers who are making more money or who got a bigger advance than I do or who are you know, more successful in some way. Typically, envy occurs among people who are in the same field or who are siblings or, you know, basically kind of in a similar line of work. And um, we all feel envy because it's wired into human nature. The way our brain operates as a social animal is that we're continually comparing ourselves to what other people have. If you stopped and look at, looked at yourself in the course of a day, you would notice at least a dozen times when you were kind of reading something online about what people were doing and you felt the pang of envy. It's very natural and human. But most times envy is passive. We feel it, we feel a pang, but we don't do anything about it. We let it pass. Or maybe if it's particularly strong, we might do something. We might give out a bitchy comment. If you notice that somebody says something with a little bit of subtext to it, like, Oh, Robert, I hear you, you know, it must be great that your, your books make so much money. And then you kind of leave that and you, hmm, they're complimenting me. But there seems to be like a little sting in there, like you really write your books to make money. That's all that you care about. You're really mercenary. And you go home and you think about it. That's a kind of pass, 
and envy that comes out in bitchy comments, or if people are perennially late, there's a kind of a power game that can show that there's something going on, perhaps some envy they're trying to put you in your place. I'm telling you in the book that basically to let that go, to not take it too seriously, because it's human nature, it's what people do, to let it pass and just kind of laugh it off. That's passive envy. But then there are the active enviers out there who can be very, very dangerous. And a lot of times when they first approach you, they're extremely friendly. They want to be your your best friend. They want to help you with your work, blah, 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 blah. And you're kind of shocked at how open they are and how interested they are in you without you having done anything. Well, a lot of times this is how they get close to you so they could end up hurting you. And, you know, a lot of friends are wounded more steeply by this kind of envy from other friends who are the envious types. They say say something that's very harmful or they sabotage them. So I don't want you to go through life constantly worried about this guy's an envy or this woman is passive aggressive, this guy is a narcissist. I want you to have, you know, it's a pleasurable thing. You're sitting there studying people. You know, I don't want you going through life always worried about people. And I had that quote from Schopenhauer that says, you know, if you're surrounded by people who are idiots, who are ne'er-do-wells, who are malicious, look at them as a specimen of a mineral or a different kind of a plant that you were studying like a scientist. And they're teaching you something about human nature. So have a little bit of distance, a little bit of humor about it, and be a little bit wary of people so that if you pick up the signs that I talk about in the book, that something is a little bit off about them, then you don't get immediately judged them, but you look for other signs that I also indicate in the book. So you don't want to get, I don't want you to be paranoid. I want you to have a light touch when it comes to this kind of thing. It's fascinating because when I read through your book, it really started a, an introspective process for me. And I really started thinking about what are my own worst personal traits. I realized that I tend to be impulsive in some situations. And I also have a horrible tendency to take things really personally. Uh-huh. You know, like say someone cuts me off in traffic or something goes wrong in business or something like I, I for some reason and, I, and I'm not sure specifically why but but that can really set you off yeah and and the other thing I've also noticed is is from like a more personal point of view is in relationships and different things if they don't specifically work out how I want them to I have a real habit to again take things personally like like it's all my fault the weight of the world on my shoulders, you know, for those things. So that is something which I really do appreciate about your book is is shining that light of awareness. So yeah. may, maybe there are certain traits which we'll never overcome, but we can manage to keep them in check. Maybe they'll never go away, but shining the, that torch of awareness, it allows yeah. us to see them. Was that your goal? Very much so. So looking at your case, for instance... I have a chapter in the book about attitude. How about your attitude towards life and towards people will determine to a great extent what you get from them. So in your case, and I have the same problem, I'm not judging or blaming you. In your case, if in a relationship 
you're a little bit defensive. You're already almost anticipating that something will go wrong. You're almost, and then you pick up any signs of a slight or that their affection for you isn't strong, quite strong enough, or that they're a little bit indifferent. And then you're, you're, the trigger is, is, is there and you're triggered in some way. Um, and this comes, as I talked about, you talk, mentioned in the book, from something that obviously goes back to your early childhood. I'm not going to delve into that right now. But if you realized that the way you approach people, your attitude towards them, will determine how they respond to you, you can begin to notice this in your relationships, in business or in lot personal, and you can begin to alter it. And it's one of the most powerful tools that you have, that you could possibly have. As I said earlier, there's many things in life you can't control. You can't control if you were born to someone with a lot of money, or if you were born in terrible circumstances, or if you have terrible parents or great parents. But you can, to some extent, not completely, control your attitude and how you look at life. So let's take this relationship thing. If you realize that in approaching a person, you feel kind of defensive and you're almost waiting for them to say something that might hurt you or reveal a disrespect, you're actually making them nervous. You're actually making them defensive. We humans pick things up non-verbally. You may not be conscious of it, but when you approach people, all kinds of chemical things are passing between you that have nothing to do with words, that are almost on an animal level. You're picking up a vibe. You're picking up an attitude. When you approach a friend and you see their smile and you know that they like you, it makes you open up and it makes you smile. But when you're approached by someone who's got a slight scowl, who seems insecure, it has the opposite effect on you. Well, you're doing the same thing. The attitude you give out towards people creates the, 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 the environment for how they're going to respond to you. So you're not going to change that overnight, and you're not going to completely alter it. But you can start playing little games. You can stop doing that. You can say, all right, I'm not going to anticipate a negative thing. In fact, maybe this other person is reacting to me in a certain way because I'm giving off this energy. I'm going to give out something else. I'm going to give out that I actually, there's this is person in the office that I can't stand, that I hate, who's so irritating. All right, what if tomorrow as an experiment, I approach them with a lighthearted spirit and I'm actually not resentful, I'm actually interested and like them, and let me see how they respond. And if it's different, you've learned something very exciting. If it's not different, then maybe it is them and it has nothing to do with you, which is, can be the case. On and on and on. I want you to sort of try these little daily experiments that you have in how you create the response that people give you. And the other thing is, is if you try to understand the circumstances of other people and why they might be difficult and why they might be a little bit irritating and why they might not be as attentive to you as you might think they should be, then you won't have this kind of negative attitude towards them initially, and the whole dynamic will change. I recently had an encounter with someone who's an old friend, and I was a little bit disappointed in the fact that she um, talked about one of my interviews, but she didn't tell me whether it was positive or negative. She kind of was laughing about it, and it kind of made me feel uncomfortable. And I sort of called her on that, and I made her upset, 
And then she started to cry. And then I, I got very bothered by this. And then I went home and I realized, I thought about it, and I knew that she had come from a very troubled background, that her father had committed suicide, that her mother had raised her in very terrible circumstances. So naturally, she's a very sensitive person, and I had maybe gone too far. And doing that process, I was able to overcome any of the emotions that I had felt. So this is sort of the thing that I think that you can control in dealing with people uh, to some extent. A fantastic point. And I, I definitely agree that it can become some sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And just linking what you said with your story with your friend and you went away and you took that empathy and you sort of changed your lens at how you looked it. I think yeah. that my favorite story from the book was the Anton Chekhov story. Yes. So I'm just wondering, what lessons can we learn from Anton Chekhov? Well, he's one of my favorite people in the book. You know, each chapter in my books is illustrated by a story, like kind of an icon. And Chekhov is sort of something that represents my entire book on human nature, because he follows so many of the laws. He was extremely open and non-judgmental. He had a tremendous love of human nature. He spent time uh, with the prisoners of, in the worst prison camps in Russia, and he understood their story, and he wrote a brilliant book exposing um, the incredible injustices there at Sakhalin Island. But the lesson of, of Chekhov was he came from the worst circumstances, almost as, you can, as anyone could imagine. He was born in this miserable backlog, backwater town in Russia, uh, Taganrog, and um, his father was an alcoholic who beat him every single day, and he and his brothers and sisters, and never really explained why. There was nothing that Anton did to deserve this beating. But the father would say, my father beat me, and I'm beating you because I love you, and it's the only way I know to make you a better person. He was crazy. He was this kind of religious nut. And all of his brothers and sisters were extremely wounded by this father and by the relationship. And as they got older, they turned into alcoholics, into people who were completely manic depressive, who couldn't get along in life. And his mother was the same. The father, this horrible father, created this terrible dynamic. And at one point, when Anton Chekhov was about 16 years old, his entire family moved to Moscow and left him alone in this town of Taganrog. And he was supposed to try and sell all of their goods, get some money and join them in a few months in Moscow where they had moved toward. So he'd been completely abandoned, this young man. It was totally callous on their part. And as he was wandering the streets and feeling incredibly sorry for himself and miserable, suddenly he had this epiphany. He had this idea that he didn't want to go through life feeling miserable and unhappy and feeling like he'd been a victim. Uh, He didn't want to go through life with carrying this cross and just sort of, you know, living a miserable life like all his siblings from this dysfunctional family. How can I overcome this? How can I change that? Well, the one thing I can change is how I look at this whole thing, how I look at the world. And it didn't take one day. It was a course of several days. But this one particular day, he had this epiphany about maybe he could change his attitude. And he thought about his father. And he thought, well, his father's father had beaten him. 
they had been serfs from one generation before. In other words, his father was the first to be born free. Um, so the grandfather had been a serf, which is essentially they had been slaves. So naturally their whole mentality had been twisted and he had passed this down from child to child. And so maybe he, my father isn't to blame for being who he was. Maybe he's actually a good person. Maybe I could try to understand why he does what he does. And maybe I can even love him. And then he thought the same about his brothers and sisters. And then he thought about Tagenrog, this incredibly horrible town where everyone was an alcoholic, so poverty stricken. Um, it had like potholes in the street that when it rained, if you fell in, it would be like up to your neck. Anyway, he thought, well, I want to be a writer. And this miserable town is so full of incredible characters that I'm going to, for my whole life, I'm going to have all this material that I can draw on about all these very funny, humorous people and all their weirdness and strangeness. And I'm going to develop a kind of distant, scientific way of looking at these people in my town. If I had been born with a lot of money in another great town, I would have never been a writer. But being here, it's going to educate me. On and on and on, he saw his circumstances as a way out, as a form of freedom. And he realized, and I end the story with this quote, is that changing your, your attitude towards your circumstances, towards your parents, to all the bad things that have happened to you, and to see in them something that you learn from, is like the ultimate form of freedom. We think of freedom as the freedom to buy products or to be able to say whatever we want on the Internet. But actually, true freedom comes from within. It's the ability to alter how you look at the world and not be emotionally drained by everything that happens to you and to accept and learn to accept things. So, it, and, and from that, he became an incredibly open person. Everybody who was around Anton Chekhov loved him. He developed tuberculosis at a very young age. So he knew that he was going to die young, which is another facet of human nature is how you relate to your mortality. And he became fearless because of that. Even though everybody told him to go through Siberia to this prison camp, was probably going to kill him. He said, no, I'm going to do it. I don't care. And then when he developed, it looked like he was about to die, that his tuberculosis was so bad, he decided to go on a sleigh ride, which he knew was going to kill him. But he just wanted to have one last moment of pleasure. So I love the fact that he was fearless towards life. And he was extremely open and non-judgmental about people. So he might be the ultimate icon for the loss of human nature. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is such a beautiful story on a real human level. And the way you were talking about freedom there, it brings me on to another question I wanted to ask you. Now, if the number one law of human nature is that we deny our own human nature, Right. It's clear then that we're an irrational species. So yes. if freedom is in self-control, what steps can we take to master our emotional selves? Being aware of yourself and aware of your some of your own patterns gives you the freedom and the potential to change them. But if you're in continual denial about your own self-absorption, about your own feelings of envy, about your own aggressive impulses, then there's no way you're ever going to change them. As far as dealing with your irrationality, nobody really goes through life thinking that they're irrational. Everybody goes and tells themselves, you know, 
I make decisions. Maybe I don't make the best decisions in life, but I always think about them carefully. I try and be strategic. I try and mull over my options, and I do the best that I can. But basically, I decide and do things based on my reason. I'm on my conscious self. But the truth of the matter is it's not that. It's the opposite. 95% of your decisions come from your emotions, come from an emotional base. And there have been study after study after study on this. I'm not the only person talking about it. In economics, they call it the effective heuristic, which basically means people's buying decisions are not rational. They're based on emotions. And they've done all kinds of studies to prove this. And so we are emotional animals which have emotions are much stronger than thoughts. And um, the, the thinking part of our brain, the frontal and the neocortex, evolved much later than all of the earlier stuff, like the amygdala and the limbic system, the lizard part of the brain. And our emotions secrete um, hormones and electrical responses in our body that are much more powerful than any kind of idea or rational thought about the world. And so when you're in the grip of anger, for instance, um, that anger controls you. It is powerful. It's releasing all kinds of hormones in your body. You don't think of it that way. You think, well, that person pissed me off, so I'm angry for a good reason. I'm being rational. And if I give them, flip them the bird, it's because, damn it, they cut me off in, in traffic. So it's about them, not about me. So you're never analyzing your own emotions. You're always thinking, you're rationalizing them. You're giving them a, like a cover story. I feel this way because of this, this, and this. And when I make a decision, it's, I'm not letting my anger or my resentment or my excitement um, determining what I'm doing. So this is very, very dangerous. Your lack of fucking awareness you think you're aware, but you're not aware. And you're going through life as if you were blind. So, you know, look at the crash of 08 in, in the United States and around the world. All of these extremely smart people on Wall Street who had all gone to the best universities in the United States, who knew everything about finance and had mastered all of these elaborate algorithms. And yet with all of that incredible accumulated intelligence of all of these brilliant people, Look at the massive stupidity that ended in the crash of 08, like lemmings running off a cliff. All of these incredibly stupid investments and this lack of awareness of, of the bubble that they were creating. Well, bubbles have, have emerged in, throughout history. And I talk in the, in the book about the greatest bubble of all in England, the South Sea bubble. And the fact that people who are so smart with all these degrees and all this finance knowledge are not aware of human nature, are not aware of the kind of lemming response that happens when other people are investing something. This, this, this um, phenomenon of the fear of missing out. If other people are investing in these fancy derivative things that nobody understands, they must be good, I better get in on it, kind of thing. These are common emotional responses to things and nobody sits, takes a step back and goes, ah, it's the emotion that's driving my behavior, not my rationality. And that's the only way you out there can ever become truly rational. The only way that you could ever begin to make a rational decision in your life is by being aware that before you decide something, you are probably being governed 
by your emotions. They're, you have this brilliant idea about a business, and you're basically looking at what I call the rosy scenario. I'm going to do A, B, and C, and D, and then I'm going to make a fortune because this can't fail. But you're not considering all the things on the periphery that will make it fail miserably. But you're guided by your emotions, your wishes, your, your excitement, and not, you're not being prudent. You know, you've got to have the awareness, just the single awareness that I am not a rational person is the greatest step that you can ever make because then you will learn to be able to take a step back. And before you decide to invest in this or to build this or to make the next step with your company or to write this book, you go, is this what I need to do? Is this the best way? Am I really making the best plan, etc.? So it's all about awareness. Do you think that in terms of mastering ourselves, we could take a weakness, as you mentioned, this a self-absorption, and turn that into a huge strength in in becoming, say, a master influencer, you know, like a, a Bill Clinton type, and taking our own self-absorption, our own narcissism, and looking at other people through the same lens in which we look at ourselves. Yes, that's one of the chapters I have calling, I call it turn self-love into empathy. But it's not easy. It's not like, wow, I just do this one thing and suddenly I'm an empathetic person that's going to turn into Bill Clinton. It's a process. It's not easy. But there are ways to it. And basically, what I'm saying is, you know, people commonly give this advice out there about how to be more empathetic and a better social individual. And they say, be a better listener. And that's an incredibly simplistic, almost stupid idea. Because there's a reason why we don't listen to other people. And you need to get at the reason why we don't listen to other people. So simply telling to listen better will not change anything. Because you basically, we the humans don't do anything unless we're motivated to do it, unless we feel the need and the desire and nine times out of ten, we do not feel the need and the desire to listen deeply to other people. So what is at the root of it? Well, when we were young, we developed self-love as a very important quality. And I try and take the judgment out of it. I'm trying to say we're all self-absorbed and narcissists. So get over thinking that you're somehow special. The belief that you are not a narcissist is a certain sign that you are a narcissist because you think that you're someone special and different. No, but this self-love and absorption came from a very natural re reason, a cause. And that is when you're young, when you're four or five years old, you go through a period where your parents aren't giving you as much attention as they used to if you come from a reasonably good home. And in those moments, you have to develop a self that you love so that when people aren't getting giving you attention, you can actually withdraw inside yourself and, you know, compensate for this. You are the ones that give yourself attention. You are the person that gives yourself love and validation. And it's a very important resource. If you don't have that, you're extremely vulnerable in life. And this is what makes really terrible narcissists is they don't develop that quality. And so the only way they can feel loved or validated is by getting attention from other people. No, you develop it by getting it from yourself, 
You create a self within that you love. And as you get older, what this means is you love your own thoughts. You love your own ideas. You love other people who are like you. If people have the same political ideas as you, it kind of validates your own ideas. And so you love them. And so you turn into a narcissist. You are fascinated by yourself and your own wishes and your own traumas and your own difficulties in life. And when you get older, you're not sitting there listening to people because you're more interested in yourself than you are in them. In your mind, you're replaying all the little things that happened to you during the day and your plans for the next day. And you're kind of half listening with maybe 25, 50% of yourself. But in the back of your mind, you're replaying all the things that happened to you, all your wishes and desires and, and moods, etc., because you're more interested in yourself than the other person. That is what you need to turn around. And I'm trying to show you in the book, and I give you ideas on that, is that people are actually more interesting than you are. You think you're so self-absorbed that you think that your ideas and your world is the most interesting thing, but actually people are incredibly interesting. You go to a movie and you, you're fascinated by Anthony Hopkins in, in, in Silence of the Lambs because you're fascinated by the character, by who he is. That's an extreme example, but of what made him who he is and why he turned into a serial killer. On and on, that's why you go to movies or that's why you read fiction. But people, the people you encounter in everyday life, even in the most banal circumstances, all have some kind of story. Their world is interesting. They too have suffered. They too have dreams and hopes. They're like characters in a novel. Even though they may not seem so grandiose as you think, they actually are very, very interesting. So you want to think in these terms. You want to turn the lens around and say, I want to spend a day the next time I encounter this person, instead of saying, I know everything about them, I can predict what they're going to say, I'm not really that interested. Try and sit there and study them, study their nonverbal communication, listen to what they're actually saying, ask some questions about their childhood, try and glean one nugget about this could be your friend of 10 years, about something that you never thought about them before and learned about them before. And suddenly you will realize that this person in front of you is actually a stranger. You don't know their inner world, but if you did know their inner world, it would be fascinating. And being able to be fascinated by people will suddenly make you a socially intelligent person. It will make you outer directed. When I encounter people, and this happens to be a quality that most writers have, so it's a little bit not quite fair for me to point that out, but I'm always, when I'm looking at people, I'm always trying to go, what is it like to be them? What is it like to, to be in their world right now? I don't care if they come from a different ethnicity, social, economic background, or a different gender. What is it their world like? What must it be like to feel like them, to feel like they do? What is it that maybe happened to them in the past? Who are they? And I'm endlessly fascinated by that. It's kind of a game I play. Well, that is the actual essential key to becoming a more socially intelligent person. And it will open up your ability to influence people, to persuade them, to get them interested in your ideas, and to avoid all of the toxic people out there. What I love so much about your work, Robert, is that I always feel like you never try to make these typical, 
huge leaps that I feel like a lot of self-help personal development books do some books and and they almost expect you to become a different person by the morning whereas I feel like you are a real master of saying no that's not realistic here are some baby steps that you can take today so if I were to ask you because we are a show rooted in action taking that's what we love so if you were to issue a challenge to us and to our audience, maybe three steps that we can take that will make us better or allow us to maybe master some of these laws. Do you have any, do you have a challenge for us and for our audience? Well, yeah, I'm a big believer in being practical and taking baby steps. So we've kind of covered them in some different ways, but essentially... Um, I want you to do to mix things up, and this is a general clue uh, method for any kind of transformation of yourself. And yes, I believe that it's slow and it's a process, and that what what you need to do is you need to take a baby step. You need to do one thing tomorrow and see a positive result, and go wow. And then that motivates you to take another step and another one. But you need some kind of reinforcement that what you're talk what I'm talking about is positive and actually will change you. So the one thing that we already discussed was in your interactions with people. I want you to go in your interactions with people tomorrow, not not in a week from today, but tomorrow, to do something different, to mix things up, to take it as if it's an experiment that you were going to play on yourself and see if there are any changes. So one of the things I said was to actually Find someone that you know quite well, that you're having a meeting with or a conversation. It could be in the office. It could be with your fellow podcaster here or anybody, really. And actually try and glean something about them that you never thought about before. It's very simple. It's a very simple task. But study their nonverbal communication. So if you say something um, about politics or sports or whatever, and you, you look to see a sign of displeasure or excitement in their eye that you didn't quite ever notice before, that's enough. You don't need more. Go home and write that down, or if you want to try and go a few more. But I want you to look at that person as if I don't know them. They are a stranger to me. They're almost like a space alien. They've landed from Mars. They're here, and I need to figure out who they are or they're going to destroy me. They're going to eat me alive. Okay, who are they? I just want to gain a couple pieces of information or knowledge that I never suspected before. And to do that, you have to observe. You have to observe their body language. You have to observe what they say. And maybe you ask a question or two that is not too probing, but is probing enough about their childhood or about things that have happened to them that will get them to open up a little bit more. So that would be Challenge number one. Challenge number two would be something also that we uh, already covered, and that would be to alter your attitude towards people. Now, this could be a separate experiment from the one I just mentioned, or you could even combine them if you want to. You normally look at yourself, and when when you suddenly meet a person that you know, that you work with, or that you've known for a while, you notice you have a certain kind of base 
emotion-based personality that you assume, an attitude that you assume when you're with them. Particularly notice this with a negative person that you react to negative. And I want you to alter that attitude. I want you to go up to them with a script in your mind that you repeat over and over and over again. I like this person. They've gotten a raw deal. Maybe I don't really understand them. Maybe they're not who they are. Maybe um, they're, you know, maybe they're responding to my own energy. I'm going to walk up to them. I don't have to have a big smile on them. I don't have to be fake. It's just I'm going to walk up to them thinking they're a good person. They're an interesting person. They have something, a story to tell. And I want you to gauge if you normally have a certain interaction with people, if there's a change in it, like a chemistry experiment. In doing this, is there a change in how they react to you? And the third thing, a challenge I want you to give is I want you to look back on your life and past events, particularly on past things that have happened that did not go well. Although it could be things that went well, but usually things that didn't go well. Your disasters, your failures, the things that didn't quite come together. And normally what you do is, oh, it was the fault of that person. Oh, it was, this person did this to me. Oh, you know, I was the victim of that. Oh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I want you to go back through your life and look at these and say, what is it about you that may have caused them? What role did you play in this problem? What could you, what maybe started from you and not from the other person? Maybe your brilliant idea wasn't so brilliant. Go back and analyze these problems and failures in your relationships, in your business decisions, in your work, and see if there's a seed of failure that stems from you in some way, the part that you might have played in this problem. So those would be the three challenges that I set for you. Wow. This has just been an, an unbelievable podcast. We feel like with your writing process, you always talk about, you write about what makes you angry. Is yeah. there anything in your life which you would love to write about, but for whatever reason, perhaps political, perhaps for economic reasons, perhaps for image reasons, who knows? Um, I suppose basically what I'm trying to say is, at the end, will there be any topics that you look back on and regret not writing about? Well, I'm a great believer in not regretting anything. The Edith Piaf song is one of my favorites. Je ne regrette rien. So, um, you know, I basically look at life as things happen for a reason. Um but as far as subjects that I haven't covered, you know, sometimes there are things that are too politically sensitive. I have my own beliefs about the world, about people that I don't want to get out there because I think it'll, it'll, you know, people won't respond to it the right way. They won't understand where I'm coming from. It'll just be me venting my own personal peak. peak. You know, I have a chapter in 48 Laws of Power Think as you like, but behave like others. So if I have thoughts that are really radical about the world, uh, I kind of let them have be thoughts. I don't have to behave or act on them. But maybe when I'm on my deathbed and there's nothing else to let, nothing to lose, 
maybe I'll, I'll let it all out. I don't know. But <laughs> basically, kind of covered many of the subjects I want to cover. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, when you vent your emotions and you're angry, you feel worse the next day. So maybe if I did that in a book or something, I would feel bad for the rest of my life. So maybe there's a reason why I don't do that. I'm going to leave it mysterious as to what that could possibly be. But um, <laughs> I probably, prudence will get the better half of me and I'll realize by instead by ranting, I'll just make myself look bad and feel bad. Robert, we have three final quick questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show, so they're not specific. The first one is, are there any societal rules or societal laws that you love to break? Well, um, I'm always breaking rules um, by my own nature. Um, I have a very rebellious streak. And so, um, you know, one of the rules that seem to govern people's behavior is that you got to do everything for the most amount of money. I mean, who would ever not try and make the most amount of money in their life? Who would not think of, of creating the most marketable thing? But I don't. That's never been my attitude. I really don't care about that. I find that really irritating. I want to write what I love. I want to do what I love. So when the 48 Laws of Power, when we were writing it, there was a point where the publishers wanted to change the structure of the book because they didn't think it was going to be, because it's such a weird looking book and it's, it's nothing else out there like it. They wanted to make it more like other books. And me and my partner at the time, who was my, was the packager of the book, we agreed and we said, no, we're not doing that. We either keep the way the book is, we sink or swim with it, or we'll go to another publisher. And basically we, we put this thing out there that is very strange that was really kind of radical and very easily could have failed and it was tremendously successful and I followed that throughout my whole life I don't think of what's the most marketable book I think of what project will excite me and if the money if it's successful it's because I was motivated by what excited me not by what would make the most money and you'd be surprised how that's worked out for me and I think it's I mean to some extent you know we all have to make a living and we have to we have to compromise and we have to do, we can't just do whatever we want. And I never do. I, I, I do make sure that my books do have some element that's marketable. So I, I don't want to be a hypocrite here. I don't sit there and write about poetry or, you know, or, or religious themes because I think I know that, this, that there's a market for it. But, I'm, but mostly what motivates me is I choose a subject that I love and I don't care what other people tell me. Because I know that if I'm excited and I do the best job, then it will succeed. That's probably the law that I, the rule that I break the most. What character trait of yours do you think has best allowed you to be successful, Robert? Um, hmm. Well, um, probably um, my persistence, my um, certain level of energy. I don't know. I don't know what, what that is. Um, you know, I think what, if I had to think it is that I 
always believed in myself. I don't want it to come off as arrogance, because believe me, I had a lot of failure in my life. I didn't write my first book until I was basically 38 years old, and up until that moment, I looked like quite a loser. I hadn't really made any money. I hadn't really done anything that mattered, etc. So I've had failure. But even during those first 38 years, I always was confident. I always felt like I was destined for something, like something good would happen to me at some point. And I never lost that faith. And so, um, you know, I could have easily gone under in that time and just sort of given up and taken a job in Hollywood and just become a hack at something and not really cared about it. But I believed, I believed that I was, it's, it's like what I wrote about in Mastery, about your life's task. I had a sense of my life's task from when I was about eight years old. And even in the darkest days, and there were plenty of them, I never lost sight of the fact that I felt like I was destined to write a certain something and be su successful at it. And so I think that kind of faith and that clarity about what I was meant to do was probably the trait that was, you know, led to my, my whatever success I've had. But I make sure in mastery, which I've described that process of discovering your life's task. It is my belief that everybody has the same thing. They have, they have a calling in life. And I explain in the book how they can achieve that and to some degree or other and how that can help them, you know, get out of the same kind of problems that I had when I was in my 30s and 20s. Your books have obviously impacted so many people's lives. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that a few of our guests have used your books as an answer to this next question. And that is, are there any books that you have read throughout your life that have greatly impacted you? The answer is no. No. Um, you know, there have been books that, I, that have impacted me when I was younger. I don't mean to say that. Um, I mean, when I was really young, because when you're in your formative years in high school, like 15 to 18, the books that you read can have a tremendous impact. So as opposed to things that I've read lately, I would go back to those books. And that was books by Friedrich Nietzsche, whom I really, really loved and who I include in all of my books. There were um, the novels of Fyodor Dostoevsky, who's one of my favorite writers, and who to this day I, I cherish his work. There was a writer named Carlos Castaneda, which a lot of young people probably have never heard of. He wrote books called The Adventures of Don Juan. He wrote about a character named Don Juan, who was like a, a Mexican um, healer, kind of a Mexican magician. And it was a book all about how this man, this kind of brilliant, wise Indian, Native American or Native Mexican, taught him everything he needed to know about life. And it may sound cheesy, but those books were fantastic, especially for a young person. They were so full of wisdom. Of course, they were talked a lot about taking drugs, and I was taking drugs at the time. <laughs> but there was so many other things there about how to face death, and ideas that really sunk into the depths of my brain and that very much influenced me. And then, of course, Machiavelli and The Prince. So I would, I would signal, single those three writers out as people that, you know, if you look at your brain as kind of a soil, 
and sort of things take root and sprout from it. And some things kind of plant seeds that stay with you and grow into something your whole life. Those would be kind of the writers that did that. And I'm sure I'm leaving out some people, but those were the main ones. So Neil Strauss is the game, didn't quite make the cap? <laughs> no, no, not at all. But, but Dangerous Liaisons did when I read that when I was about 22, 23. So our last question, Robert, before we wind down what has been an incredible, incredible conversation is, if you could hypothetically give a short but impactful message to every person on the planet, what would Robert Greene's message be? My message would be that um, we better get our act together or we're going to be in deep shit very soon. And I mean it seriously. There's so many bad things going on in the world now. So much tribalism, so much rampant emotion, so much stupidity and unenlightenment and people who are kind of drugging themselves to death and um, so much irrationality. And we're all laughing while the environment is going to pot and, you know, Iceland is melting and Greenland is melting. We're going to kill ourselves and this incredible planet if we're not careful. So wake up before it, it, it's all too late, you know. I'm sorry, I really sincerely believe that. The news about what's happening with the climate is extremely dire. And I talk about it a little bit in the book, how we're not, we're not a very aware animal that we live in the short term. We can only think about one year or two years in advance. Like, how can we get Donald Trump out of office in one year? But there's bigger issues. You know, that would really help. That would be a really big thing. That would really be a major uh, benefit to the environment and to other issues. But, you know, let's become more aware. It's not about one evil or bad person. It's about human nature, about who we are. And we have to become more self-aware. That, that would be my major message. I know it's a bit of a downer, but that's how I feel. Robert, we can our Freedom Pact family connect with you? Um, at uh, I have a website that I've had for years called Power, Seduction, and War. The and is spelled out. PowerSeductionAndWar.com And there you'll find links to my three other books. The book I did with 50 Cent, The 50th Law, Mastery, and my new book, The Laws of Human Nature. And then all of my Twitter and Instagram accounts. You'll find links there and all my other podcasts Robert you have been a hero of ours for so long and privileged to speak to you and they say never speak to your heroes but I think we've disproved that theory tonight well as they say no man is a, is a hero to his valid Robert thank you so much for coming on the show it was an absolute pleasure oh, you're very welcome thank you guys <laughs>